Dear Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to come to you at this camp meeting here in Michigan. We are so delighted to be here, to spend time together with friends and loved ones, and most of all, to spend time with you, learning what you have to say to us through your word, through also looking at how you have led us in the past. And, Father, I just want to pray a special blessing upon this seminar, that it will be a real encouragement to all of us as we see how you have led your church in the past and you will continue to lead us now and into the future. We pray this in your name. Amen. So let's go back together in in the 1850s and we will see what the Advent believers were experiencing, a little problem that was happening during that time. Brothers and sisters, we just need to continue to believe that the Lord is coming soon, notwithstanding the fact that we have been disappointed recently and um, we have been studying the scriptures to learn why we should hold fast our confidence. I would just like to encourage you with a passage from Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 35, which says, Cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. Brother Smith, Brother Smith, there's someone here. Brother Johnson, he says he has new light. I have he new light. To, I have been given new light from the Lord. The Lord does not need to come in a, in a physical sense. He came in a spiritual sense, the Lord is among us. He I can see, come. brother. I can see, brother Johnson. You have a very important message. Let's talk about it this afternoon. No, no, no. You have to listen to me now. I, I understand. I think he has an I, important message. I understand that. Let's let's talk about it this afternoon. Come, let's let's go. So this was happening in various gatherings of Advent believers. People would come. Sometimes they were preaching the truth. But sometimes people would just come and say they had a message for the Lord. They had a message for the believers. And they wanted to share it. How could they tell who was who? Who could they trust? How could they know who they could trust? Well, what they needed to do, there needed to be some way to tell that wherever they were, when they were gathered together, if a speaker came, he would need to have some sort of credentialing. And so that is how and why the beginning of the credentialing process came about within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, some people will say, well, that just came, our our pioneers, they were just going by the uh, the churches that they were in, and they were just copying that. Some have even suggested, well, they took the Roman Catholic 
uh, way of, of having bishops, you know, a pope, a bishop, and so on. And that's where ordination comes from. But do you really think our Adventist pioneers who had left, who actually had mostly been kicked out of their churches, do you really think that they would have adopted something from the Catholic Church? Do you think that even from the churches where they had been excommunicated from, would they adopt their way of governance? Something to think about. So, to begin with, to give us a solid foundation, to get a clear picture of how women fit into Adventist ministry within the early Adventist church, was there a place for women? Absolutely. Were they credentialed? Were they licensed? That's what we're going to talk about. And I am so delighted that today my husband, Dr. Clinton Walline, can join us because he has done a lot of study on this, particularly in what's called gospel order. Have any of you, in Bible order, have you heard of Ellen White's visions on Bible order and gospel order? Okay, just one person. Oh, two, maybe. Okay, three. Okay, maybe the rest of you are just too shy to raise your hands. Um, this, my friends, this is the key. This is really the key to understanding something that we are still, some people are still confused about today. If we can understand these visions that were given to Ellen White and then follow-up articles that were written by a number of pioneers, it is the key to understanding, in fact, what's going on today. So, I am really happy, Clint, that you're here. Uh, he's an associate director at the Biblical Research Institute at the General Conference, and he'll be sharing uh, with us now about women and gospel order. Thank you, Gina. This is the most important woman for me right here. Yes. Um, and so what I want to share with you this afternoon, as my wife mentioned, has been really clouded and confused in some cases and some places. But let's just start at the beginning. You know, our pioneers were very reluctant to be organized. They resisted it very strongly. And that actually, if you think about it, is a blessing. Because that means that they were not just ready and willing to take what they had in the organizations of the churches from which they came. They wanted to make sure that everything they did had its basis solidly in the Bible. Now, of course, there were many things that happened and took place in the late 1840s to establish our message before the steps of organization could be taken, before mission even could be undertaken. And God, I think, providentially saw to that as well because they believed that 
Jesus was coming so soon, they just, what they needed to do was understand what the Bible had to say about it. And so they, they weren't so um, absorbed with mission as with study of the message to start with. Now, why might that be? Do we have to understand our message before we go on a mission? Absolutely. And so God in His providence made sure that the message was solidly established on a firm platform of Scripture. The first, second, and third angel's message. But then came a very important vision in Paris, Maine, back, actually it was Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1850. And Ellen White received this vision that I've labeled Bible order vision because she refers specifically to Bible order. She says that Christ is the head of the church and that the church must move in order. And then she also had a glimpse of the order of heaven. And she said, how perfect, how beautiful the order... Actually, this is the words of an angel. How perfect, how beautiful the order in heaven. Follow it. She said, I saw if Israel, God's last day church, moved steadily along going according to Bible order, they would be terrible as an army with banners. Of course, quoting from the Song of Solomon, meaning that no enemy would be able to stand against them. But notice, there is a condition. What is the condition? If God's last day church, what? Move steady along, steadily along, moving forward, going according to Bible order. But what if they didn't continue moving forward according to Bible order? Could they claim that promise? We could not. She also said, I saw that the burden of the message now was the truth. The Word of God, she said, should be strictly followed and held up to the people of God. Strictly followed. And it would be beautiful and lovely if God's people would be brought into a straight place to see the workings of God through exercises of visions. Now, we don't use this language very often anymore. Brought into a straight place. What is that? Narrow, yes. I I actually looked it up in Noah Webster's dictionary of the 19th century, and it says narrow, close, not broad. And then it gives the quotation from Matthew 7, verse 14. Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, that leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Interesting that it defines these things from Scripture, too. Well, Ellen White had this vision. She encouraged the brethren toward Bible order. 
And it's very interesting to me that the order is Bible order, that this is, is the foundation, right? Scripture. And there's order throughout Scripture because God's people from Genesis to Revelation have always had a system of order that God has instituted. A system of organization. Um, a system whereby it could reflect the order that is in God Himself. God is a God of order, not of confusion, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14. But not much happened after this first vision of 1850. And so, almost two years later, a second vision was given in Dorchester, Massachusetts, September 30th, 1852. And notice this, it talks about, again, order in heaven, but it's more specific. It's referring to gospel order. That is the order of the New Testament. And so it refers to order that took uh, shape under Christ and His disciples. And she says that order is needed now more than ever before. Notice this key first sentence. It's found, by the way, in early writings, the chapter called Gospel Order. She says, The Lord has shown that Gospel Order has been too much what? Feared. Too much feared. And neglected. I think, although it was clearly true then, I think it's true also now. These words may be just as applicable to us today. Gospel order has been too much feared and neglected. She wrote, there is order in heaven. There was order in the church when Christ was upon the earth. And after His departure, order was what? Strictly observed among His apostles. And now in these last days, while God is bringing His children into the unity of the faith, there is more real need of order than ever before. For as God unites His children, what? Satan and his evil angels are very busy to foster and promote this unity, right? Is that what it says? To prevent this unity. To prevent this unity. Do we see efforts today to prevent the unity of God's church? And... uh, It says, Satan and his evil angels are very busy to prevent this unity and to destroy it. Of course, that will not succeed. So what is the purpose of this gospel order vision? If you look at it, it's actually a detailed explanation found in early writings. The purpose is, to explain how to distinguish ministers who are truly called by God from what Ellen White refers to there as self-sent men. You see, Brother Johnson, that we just sort of reenacted, it's, it's a pretend incident. Probably those incidents happened regularly, and this is why that vision and Uh, of Bible order and this vision of gospel order was necessary 
but uh, there were many self-sent men. So how would you distinguish a self-sent man from one who is truly called by God? Is everyone who claims to be called by God sent by God? Apparently not. There are self-sent people. So, a very important purpose of this vision was to explain how to distinguish the two. Those truly called by God from those who are self-sent. And to direct the church to Scripture, applying key passages to the choice of Gospel ministers. And we'll look at those key passages in detail in just a moment. A third purpose, to explain that the example of the apostolic church is to be followed today. It wasn't only for the New Testament church of the first century. Now, the next several slides summarize the main points that are set forth in this chapter of early writings, Gospel order. First of all, regarding um, the qualifications for Gospel ministers, she says, men who had given good evidence that they were capable of ruling well their own house and preserving order in their own families and who could enlighten those who were in darkness. So this is an important qualification. Notice how it compares with what Scripture says also in this regard. 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So, men who have given good evidence, they were capable of ruling well their own house, preserving order in their families. This is an important qualification, as well as enlightening those who were in darkness. Number two, men of judgment, men of experience, and deep piety. Notice 1 Timothy 3, verse 2. The minister or elder is to be vigilant, sober, of good behavior. Number three, men who can bear opposition and not get excited because every objection in its worst form will be brought against the truth. Able to bear opposition. We should expect opposition. Our message is not always a popular message. Titus 1 verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Number four, prepared to remove these objections with calmness and meekness by the light of truth. And where do we find the light of truth? Scripture, right? The light of truth is found here. So, Ministers should be prepared to remove these objections with calmness and meekness by the light of truth. Notice 2 Timothy 2.25 In meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. You see how point by point throughout this vision of Gospel order, Ellen White brings out the very principles that we find in the Bible on this topic. Number five, 
qualification for gospel minister. He should be willing to be servants of all instead of being exalted above the brethren. Mark 10.44, Jesus said, And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be what? The servant of all. Number six, in possession of a kind, courteous spirit, and if they err, ready to confess thoroughly. 2 Timothy 2.24, And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Number seven, pure in conversation and in action, so that at all times and in all places, they can shed a holy influence. Notice what Titus 1 verse 8 says, that this minister or elder should be just or righteous, holy, and temperate. Number eight, ever aware that they are handling words of inspiration, words of a holy God, 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Number nine. We're almost done, by the way. There's ten. Bearing the flock entrusted to them, to Jesus, and plead for them as Jesus pleads for us with the Father. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Notice Paul's words in Acts 20, verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. Number 10. Set apart by the laying on of hands. Brethren of experience and of sound minds should assemble and following the Word of God and the sanction of the Holy Spirit, should with fervent prayer lay hands upon those who have given full proof that they have received their commission of God and set them apart to devote themselves entirely, entirely to His work. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Lay hands suddenly on no man. And 2 Timothy 4.5 adds, Make full proof, Paul's to Timothy, make full proof of thy ministry. So, having set forth these principles, it's very clear that the Bible has everything we need to know on this topic of gospel order. But, interestingly, more important than publishing this vision was really to study the Bible and study it thoroughly on this topic. And after the first vision, that didn't happen. So a second vision was given, this vision we've just went through. And then we find in the next year, 1853, James White begins a series of four articles. Again, interesting title, right? Gospel Order written and published in the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald of December 1853. In this series, he makes many of these same points, drawing out from Scripture 
the solid foundation for gospel order that's presented there. One uh, important statement he makes is this. The divine order of the New Testament is sufficient to organize the church of Christ. I'll read that again. The divine order of the New Testament is sufficient to organize the church of Christ. If more were needed, what? It would have been given by inspiration. While we reject all human creeds or platforms which have failed to affect the order set forth in the Gospel, we take the Bible, the perfect rule of faith and practice. He also wrote, it is of the highest importance that there be perfect union Union of sentiment and of action. Otherwise, there would be division and confusion among the precious flock. You see, again, just as uh, we read earlier, it is the work of Scripture and these principles of gospel order that draw us together into unity. That's its purpose. And without them... James White says, there would be division and confusion in the church among the precious flock. Gospel ministers who teach and baptize should be ordained or set apart to the work of the ministry by the laying on of hands. Some, he writes, have taken it upon themselves to baptize who profess no calling to teach. Are there some who do that today? Oh, all they need to do is be baptized in Christ. And then we'll teach them what they need to know. Some have taken it upon themselves to baptize who profess no calling to teach. Even though in Matthew 28.19, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Others have gone out to teach the Word whose lives were not correct at home course, referring to what we read in 1 Timothy 3. Both have injured the cause. Let those who are called of God to teach and baptize be ordained how? According to the Word. And known abroad as those in whom the body have confidence. You see, this is a call. A call for credentialing. A call for recognizing those who have the trust and confidence of the people of God so they can be distinguished from those who may appear to have a message but are not sent by God. So, In summary, the qualifications and duties of an ordained minister are plainly stated in Scripture. The qualifications are given in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, Titus 1, 7-9. We won't take the time to look at those passages. I think many of us are probably familiar with them. But if not, feel free to write those down. 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and Titus 1, 7-9. And the duties are plainly stated in 2 Timothy 4, 1-5, Titus 2, 6-8, through 8, 
and Acts 20, verse 28, which of course we, we quoted that passage. And parts of the other ones as well. Ordination and unity are very closely connected. In line with Ellen White's vision on the subject of gospel order, the need for the church to recognize qualified and capable ministers through formal ordination was considered foundational for church organization and the unity of the faith. Now, this was not simply something that James White and Ellen White were promoting. There was a lot of study that was given to this topic in the 1850s. Joseph Bates wrote a very important article on church order in the Review and Herald of 1854 where he shows how through church history um, this has been, that is through biblical history, this has been important. And the New Testament church structure is the secret for uh, God's people at the end of time. A man by the name of J.B. Frisby also published many articles on church order. One in 1854, December 26th, on characteristics of church order. He wrote, the, ordination, the authority for ordination comes from God and by being chosen by the church. So, a twin qualification. The ordination comes from God and from the church, from being chosen by the church. Now, my wife a few minutes ago mentioned that we did not just adopt the ideas from the churches from which our pioneers came. But as I've pointed out here, they studied it out thoroughly through the Bible. And uh, in fact, they were quite intentional about that. Adventists rejected the Roman Catholic concept of ordination. They rejected the concept of ordination that prevailed through church history, preferring instead to go back to the Bible and search Scripture for what the biblical basis for ordination is. Our pioneer scholar J.N. Andrews also, he wrote in 1877 about this topic, and he underscored the vast difference between the Adventist view of ordination and the way it is understood by other denominations. Now, I wasn't sure how much time I would have to share this, so I didn't put it in the PowerPoint slide, but I would like to quote from this article, because I think it's very, very helpful. He writes, The ordinances of the church have been corrupted in Babylon. To leave Babylon, it is necessary to turn from these corruptions and to receive the pure ordinances of the New Testament church. Did the reformers see the necessity of doing this? They did not, he says. They were satisfied with the baptism which they had received in infancy 
from the Catholic priests. And they perpetuated this corruption of the ordinances of baptism in the Protestant churches. Of course, many of them practiced not the biblical basis of baptism, right? But that sprinkling or pouring, not immersion, which is the biblical basis. So they were satisfied with these ordinances In the, and uh, they were satisfied with the baptism which they received in infancy from the Catholic priest, perpetuated this corruption of the ordinances of baptism in the Protestant churches. They served in the work of the Christian ministry by virtue of their ordination as Catholic priests. And they never considered it important to be set apart to the holy ministry by converted men. You see, our, the great reformers even, Martin Luther, John Calvin, who ordained them? They were ordained in the Catholic Church, right? And he's pointing this out. They considered their ordination, Catholic ordination, valid. They never considered it important to be set apart to the holy ministry by converted men. They were satisfied with that which they had received from Rome. Our pioneers were not satisfied by that which they received, whether it be from Rome or any other church. Even the bishops, I'm still quoting, even the bishops and archbishops of the ancient Catholic Church of England have been perpetuated in the Church of England and in the Episcopal Church of America and these churches pretend to be the Catholic Church, or rather, grand divisions of that church, because they can trace their bishops back to the apostles through the long line of popes. These things show, he says, that the Reformation formed the third grand division of Babylon. Instead of establishing a church upon the model of the ancient apostolic church. This third division, it's much less soiled with error than are the other two divisions, but it is not clean in the sight of God. Not clean in the sight of God. Why? Because it's not based on Scripture. True ordination and that's true succession of ordination as we read in the Spirit of Prophecy is based on fidelity to this book. It is this book that determines the succession of godly ordained ministers. The early Adventists were determined that every step taken with regard to faith and practice would be only that which could be substantiated from Scripture. Adventists came to appreciate the value of church order and ordination to church office and to understand more clearly the will of God for His remnant as an organized church within the prophetic setting of the third angel's message. Now, notice this. The early Adventist understanding of church order and ordination was not simply adopted from the churches out of which the pioneers came or derived from the churches around them. 
their understanding of ordination was worked out on the basis of Scripture alone. Scripture alone. So the the key to this topic is really found right here. This is all we need to know. God has given us what we need to know in this book. And if it's not here, then it's not part of that foundation of the church that has been laid by the apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2. So, uh, let's talk just for a moment about credentials. In the early Advent uh, history, um, the credentials that were initiated first were those of the ordained minister because these were the ones that were evangelizing, raising up churches, baptizing. So ordination was given to those who received the trust of the church. Now what is ordination? By the way, this word, our pioneers did not go back to the Latin Bible as we saw. They didn't go back to the Catholic Church to understand what ordination means. They went to Scripture. So, whether, regardless of the English derivation of the word ordination, as some have emphasized, our understanding of ordination is not Catholic. It's biblical. That is one of the most important points. And so, if you think about the word ordination... It is that setting apart of a trusted minister to and authorize him to conduct the ordinances of the church. And a person who has been ordained through the process of ordination is authorized by the church to conduct the ordinances of the church. You see the relationship of these words? Ordained, ordination, ordinance. What are the ordinances in Scripture? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And and, uh, these are the biblical ordinances that they are authorized to perform. In addition to that, of course, there are people who were authorized to preach. Now, Brother Johnson was not one of these men. Okay? Brother Smith was authorized to to preach. Had a, a license. By the way, it's interesting, Uriah Smith was preaching for many years before he was actually ordained through the service of ordination. Very interesting. So the license, there were, the license was a license to preach and it, was authorized, it authorized persons to travel and to conduct uh, a service a preaching service in a church and to bring people to the church to study the Bible with them, to 
help them understand the message for this time. That was what the license was for. The license for a licensed minister is really a license to preach. They were authorized to preach. The ordination credential or ministerial credential was authorization not only to preach, but to conduct the ordinances of the church. So, with that background, now I think we need to talk about the women and gospel order. Thank you, Clint, very much. I hope you found that helpful in laying the foundation and understanding how our church started credentialing and why and how it was biblically based and the difference between the credentials, the ministerial ordination credentials, and a ministerial license, a license to preach. Now, did women receive ordination credentials? Were they ordained anywhere in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? No, we have no record in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church of a woman being ordained. However, we do have record of many women receiving licenses to preach. Does anyone know when the first license to preach was issued to a woman? Any guesses? Well, I will tell you, and uh, I find it in a book here that I'm going to be telling you about in just a moment. Not long after regularizing the credentialing of ordained ministers in 1861 by the, you know which conference? That's right, by the Michigan Conference. Yes, by the Michigan Conference and organizing the General Conference in 1863, the system of issuing licenses to individuals started. The first woman to receive a license to preach was Sarah A. Halleck Lindsay, and she received her first license in September of 1869. So that's pretty soon after we were organized. Organized in 1863, the first woman to receive the license was in 1869. Interesting enough, she, as were many of the women who received licenses to preach, minister, and they went together as a couple. Sometimes they would uh, work separately, but mostly together they were working. And um, Sarah and her, her husband, they worked in New York and Pennsylvania. And they did a wonderful work and raised up many churches in that area. And as we go through the week, it'll be very interesting to see what these women did. The, uh, the license to preach is really a very powerful and very important license, as we will see. It's a vote of confidence. So early on, 
our church recognized the contributions that women could make and gave women a vote of confidence by issuing these ministerial licenses. And um, so each day we'll be talking about that. But I see we have a little over 11 minutes left. And what we'd like to do is to open it now for questions. Uh, Maybe this is something new that you haven't heard before. Maybe it's different from what you've heard before. Um, Maybe you, uh, you just would like to ask something. But by the way, uh, before I forget, uh, do I have a friend back there from the ABC? Do we have our ABC person back there? Yes? We're supposed to have an ABC person. There is a book that actually lists all of the women from 1869 until 1975, who received license, who were licensed by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's in Appendix 5. This book is called Women's Ordination Doesn't Matter. And it was written by Clinton and Gina Walleen. (laughs) And um, was actually, frankly, not a book that we had been looking to write. But because of a lot of original research that needed to be done, maybe you've heard of TOS, the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, because there was a lot of research that needed to be done, um, that's why this book was written. It is based on research that was done for the TOSC report, but it is written in a very friendly, not a high academic way, and uh, it, it goes through many things, actually, that we'll be going through this week. And it has a lot of helpful appendices in the back, including a lot of questions and answers. And uh, we have a special, it's a low price here at camp meeting, and you can get your copy back there, and uh, it will, I, I think, will enrich our study this week. So I just wanted to let you know about that. By the way, there are two chapters of the book specifically dealing with women and gospel order. So, yeah, it's very helpful. Uh, It really helped me understand. I mean, there's nothing like having to write a book to help you understand the issue. So um, anyway, I, I think you'll, you'll enjoy that. But now we're ready to take your questions. And I see there are people with microphones ready for you. Okay, we have someone up here. There are two microphones, so if you raise your hand, the other one can go to you. So my question is, did they stop giving preaching licenses to women in 1975? Good question. And yes, they did. You're right, that is bad. (laughs) Well, there's there's an article that was written about this by Steve Mervyn Maxwell. I think it's titled, A Very Interesting and Surprising History. And... um, the essence of this chapter explains that in the 1970s, the church, was, the general conference was confronted with a dilemma by the Internal Revenue Service of the United States government. 
because licensed ministers and ordained ministers were working in the churches and we told them they're both ministers. We don't make the distinction. They have the the parsonage uh, allowance that we give to all ministers. Um, And they said, no, they need to be able to do the ordinances and then only can you call them a minister and will we accept that they are really ministers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Well, if they were to uh, restrict it just to those who would have the authorization to baptize and to conduct communion service and, and, of course, perform weddings, that would mean that a lot of the licensed ministers would become employees of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and uh, probably not be able to be remain continued in employment because the the monies were not adequate to fund that additional very large expense. And so, what was done was to enable licensed ministers also to perform these ordinances if they were ordained as elders in the. Uh, in the local church, they'd been ordained as elders and were elected as elders of the local congregation where they pastored. And then as an elder, they could do these things. And so it was a way of satisfying the IRS. But the problem was then, what about women who would be, were, had licenses to preach? Well, they weren't going to be licensed to baptize and conduct communion. That would be ordained functions. And so that's why they had to be, the licenses had to be removed. Now, whether that was the best solution, we could um, discuss that for quite some time. But that was, anyway, the solution that was arrived at. And um, uh, then later, I guess I should point out, if you look at the 1984 annual council discussion, where it was debated uh, regarding... um, the idea of elders being able to do these ordained functions within the church um, uh, that would be uh, applied to licensed ministers. It was pointed out by one of the delegates in the discussion that the IRS problem never didn't exist anymore. It was a moot point. So by 1984, anyhow, or maybe it's 1990, 1990, yeah, got a double-check the date on that. But um, in any case, by the time it needed to be decided at, uh, at the world church level, it was no longer an issue from the IRS and that it could then be decided on a biblical basis. But that didn't happen. But that didn't happen. We have a question here. I appreciate the sister jumping off where I sort of intended to jump off. Were those licenses revoked? They weren't. They've just not been any additional issued? Yeah, I think they were just, uh, you know, they were licensed for a year or two and... uh, At a time, and so they they sort of of sunset I think so. You know, I'm not not sure exactly, but... Okay, that's fine. Um, So, but I, I think I'm correct in understanding that IRS policy has affected a a Bible order question for the world church. Is that correct? 
this was an issue really that only was a problem in the United States. Only an NAD issue. In the United States. And so um, in that case, the policies were implemented within the United States. This wouldn't apply outside the United States. Okay. Have those policies impacted the world church? Do, do they underlie some of the ongoing dialogue? Well, we're in some ways still living with those decisions today. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, the other, the, the sister made the statement that there was no history of ordination of women within the church. Now, I, I, my question is, is, is that statement still true or does it have a, there was no history of ordination of women within the church until? No, the church doesn't recognize this. Okay. Yeah, well, I, yes, thank you for saying that. I should clarify. Um, there, when I say there's no history of ordination of women within the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I'm talking specifically ordination to the gospel ministry. There have been, uh, there are women who are ordained as local church elders. As local church elders, yes, we do have a history of that. But we do not have any women who are ordained to the gospel ministry. Now, we have some who claim that they are ordained to the gospel ministry. We have some conferences and unions who have ordained women but it is not what has been voted by the World Church three times. And so those ordinations are not recognized by the World Church. Maybe I'll just add that ordination has always been, uh, ordination of the gospel ministry, a credential that applies worldwide. And so therefore, anyone who ha- receives this credential should have the authority from the church to perform all the functions of an ordained minister anywhere within the world church. And that still stands. Discuss um, commissioning. And will you, will you touch on that subject this week? The, the distinction between, we commission teachers, and there's some discussion about commissioning Elders, I mean, for, for myself, I'm trying to sort out a lot of information. I appreciate this and, and, and the book, which I tend to pick up on the way out. And so my question is, is do you touch on those issues and, and help bring some clarification to those subjects as well? Tomorrow, that's a very good question. It's very important for us to talk about that. And early in the morning, does the book address those things? Not, not in, not, not in detail. Depth. Will yeah. this be available on Audioverse? And it I will be. I'm so. sure. By yeah. These presentations uh, yes. will. Yes, Pastor Cody yes. says it will. So I'm. Yeah. It's for. It's available for sale over. Okay. Yes. So. Okay. All right. Very. Okay. I think there's a question here. Uh, one more question, and then mm-hmm. we're out of time. Um, I was wondering if, like, from the beginning, was there like a list of, of um, qualifications that were for? Um, women license or or did it come from the woman herself did she request it or was it a, a consensus of people who would come to her and say oh, we would like you to be um, at the beginning there was no examination for the woman 
There was no examination. That did not come until, I believe, 10 years later. For a woman or for a man. There was no formal process spelled out for what was to be received for a license to preach. This was more of giving an opportunity to prove your ability as a minister. And as I mentioned, this first one, she was the wife of a minister and was working together, which actually Ellen White really encourages for pastors and their wives to minister together. That's strongly encouraged. So we're out of time this time. Thank you so much for coming. There are a limited number of these books in the back. You're welcome. Oh, they're not there? They forgot? Well, at the ABC. Okay. Well, run over to the ABC and get your coffee, (laughs) and we'll see you here tomorrow, same time and same place. Uh, God bless. Let's let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to open your word this afternoon and for our uh, pioneers, for the gift of prophecy through writings of Ellen White. We thank you for every blessing that you've given your people for these last days. And we pray that you would guide us, continue to uh, lead us by that uh, light of your word, the light of truth and spirit of prophecy, that we may uh, follow your will in every way, be prepared for your coming, and help others also to be ready. Bless each one of us here today. In Jesus' name, This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.